care for you, kid. I am the wizard master. In the name of Lorik, Prince of Elves, Demon be gone! Take me down, take me anywhere you want me, baby, now. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Fear of God. Guess what? So we did I Love the 80s, and we loved it. So as a coda on this series, apparently Reed wanted to just, like, leap forward from the 80s to the roughly mid-90s. You know, we've made an occasional habit of covering non-movies. You know, like extended poems in The Raven or, you know, songs like... Eminem Stan or bad guy. Well, apparently we're going back to the jukebox this week because Reed wanted to cover Mariah Carey's Dream Lover. I don't totally get it, but you know, I mean, I think like I don't know. Maybe maybe you could say that's the beginning of the horror show that became Mariah's career that culminated in New Year's a couple years ago. Like I could sort of see that. It's sort of a prequel to that kind of horror story. Um, I, for one, like 90s pop, so I wasn't going to really push against too hard covering this. Nonetheless, while we wait for Reed to kind of put his quarters in the jukebox and get the get the song going for us, because, you know, you can't cover Dream Lover without hearing it, right? Um, I wanted to encourage everyone, if you have not yet, welcome to the fear of God, everybody, by the way. This is Nathan. Welcome back. You know, it's been a while since you've heard us a whole week. Um, so, so we appreciate you being here. Um, while we wait for Reed to get back, please, if you have not, uh, rate us, review us, you know, subscribe to us. We did hit 50 in October. That was really exciting. You know, I don't know. There's feels like something special about the big five Oh, you know, so, so if you haven't done that, it would really mean a lot to us if you would do that now, now that, okay. Now that you've done that, now that we've got that taken care of, Reed, Hey. Reed, welcome to the show, man. I'm so glad you finally convinced me to get into the pop music horror run of our show. It seems like a like a case could be made that it's a bit of a jump the shark moment, if I'm honest. Wow. Like, wow. don't get me wrong. I love some mid nineties Mariah, but Dream Lover? I mean So like, that's what you said, right? That's what you said you wanted to cover. So you made uh you may have made a grave preparational error. In your 
what? You know, kind of preparing for this. I thing. shouldn't have downloaded her entire catalog just to get that one song. I know. No, 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 not not quite. Because what we're actually deciding to cover is not uh, <laughs> anything to do with Mariah Carey, uh, but in fact, what? yeah, we are in fact covering the third installment. So not number two, number three, the third installment of the what? Nightmare on Elm Street series called Dream Warriors. Not not Dream Lover by Mariah Carey, not Dream Lover by Bobby Darren, but what? Dream Warriors, the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Yes. So uh, so what I need you to do real quick. Oh, is, no. Are you serious? Yeah, so I need you to go real quick. I mean, I've been jamming to Mariah all I week. Know. Well, I mean, we can maybe do that as like a, you know, like, I don't know. I just need, I either I need to go listen to Mariah Carey or you need to go watch the movie. Whichever needs to happen, that... Uh, <laughs> We should we should go ahead. I think you need to listen to Mariah. Is that what we're gonna do? Go get that un go get that unplugged. Okay, album. I'll be so- hang on. I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, I've listened to all of Mariah now, and I'm more convinced than ever that we need to do Dream Warriors. I'm more convinced. That it's than appropriate ever. to cover. Yeah, we we've got to do <laughs> okay, Dream Warriors. I'll- so hang on, hang on. Let me shh, let me go watch it. Okay, I'm back. I watched it. Okay, I did. I did. But I will admit, I watched it on mute with Dream Lover playing on repeat. (laughs) We're so stupid. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. How you doing? So I'm good. I'm excited. So listeners, much like they did with um, number two, uh, they're probably like, Wait, I thought last week was the end of I Love the 80s. Is there ever an end to how much we can express our love for the 80s? No. I really just, I I don't think there is. So we really wanted to do a little coda on that series. Um, yes. A little, a little, a little button, a little button, a little bookend, little, little appendix, little extra <laughs> for you guys. Um, so yeah, we decided to... Um, Reed made a strong case for the strength of what is actually Dream Warriors, the third installment of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt Murray. We actually aren't covering <laughs> Dream Lover today. Um, but he made he made a good case for covering Dream Warriors. I decided, you know what? I'm with you, Riri. Uh, in, in all things, um, I'll follow you into the very fires of Mordor. <laughs> and here we are covering covering Dream Warriors. Um, but in the spirit, in the spirit of the song, Reed, it's been a while and oh boy. Oh I just, boy. I just got to know what you're watching, what you're reading. I wish I could sing this like Mariah Carey. <laughs> what you listening to? <laughs> it's what's so stupid about me, Reed, is I thought so in depth about how to make the dream lover joke work that I didn't complete the circuit and study it enough to know how I could marry what you're watching <laughs> to the tune of dream lover. That's really that's, funny. that's how dumb I am. That's, that's an inability to commit to the joke. Do that homework next time. That would be funny. That would be really funny. Um, I'll, I'll probably, I'll probably not do that. <laughs> um, but no. Okay. So, uh, one thing, so obviously we just wrapped up October. So I've been watching, you know, lots of fun, scary stuff. Uh, at the time of this recording, 
Uh, I have only just dipped my toe into the waters, but um, I did uh, watch the new Halloween movie, uh, Halloween 2018, which uh, you saw as well. I did. And see so, it. Uh, so I want to say, I mean, we can mention our brief sort of thoughts here right now, but uh, did want to mention you and I were just recently on the show Feelin' Film with Aaron White, uh, talking much more in depth about that particular film. Uh, so go check them out and go check our episode out where we talk about David Gordon Green's Halloween. Um, but no, I was very pleased. I liked it. I liked it very much. I feel like it was a nice return to form. Uh, we will probably, maybe, we'll see, do a more full episode about it. So I want to save some specific thoughts. There's no uh, maybe about that. We will be doing we will be doing an episode so we can save some really deliberate specific thoughts, but I can just sum up by saying like I feel like it was a real return to form. I enjoyed the heck out of it and I was really glad to see the shape back in business as it were. Uh, How about you? I don't know. I feel like just the pure act of me taking the initiative to go see Halloween should like thrill your spirit. Um, It does. Oh, it does. Good. Especially considering read. I loved it. I really, (laughs) I really, I really, really dug that movie. I'm so glad. It was an incredibly fun, incredibly fun experience. That actually isn't my what you're watching. I do think I'm going to petition and I'm going to get an audience uh, uh, to support me petition for us to cover Halloween 2018 um, sometime soon. However, what I have been watching, there's many things. I'll only pick one from the hat, though. I did. I did watch. Uh, the TV show, I don't know that we've ever actually referenced it on the show yet, though I know you had seen it. Um, I watched the first season of the TV show Channel Zero, uh, which oh, is yes. a sci-fi series that now is streaming on Shudder, um, the horror service. Read that is scary. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. My yes, it is. gosh. Six episodes. If you've got any curiosity about that show, it is as as listeners to our show and people who are generally amenable to the type of material we cover it is it's great it's really strong it is really scary there's some great creature designs as part of it um it is it is really worth your time so that is just one of the numerous things that i have been watching reading or listening to that is just that's that, awesome. that is just one of the things that I've been listening to. I'll save some other stuff for next week. Um, and we'll see. We'll see. Because I, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to throw everything at you at once. It's been no. It's been a little no, while. No. It's been a little while. Exactly. So check out Channel Zero if it's still in theaters by the time you hear this. Check out Halloween, and that has been another installment of what you watching, what you reading, what you listening to. I don't actually know the, the <laughs> Dream Lover, but that was my. That was my painful attempt uh, to try to sort of uh, bring that in. What about Dreamweaver? Who sang Dreamweaver? Do you know? Dream? Uh, Dream no. Dreamweaver. Features heavily in Wayne's World, the first Wayne's World movie. Is it Hall and Oates? No, it's not Hall and Oates. That's Man Eater. It's not Dreamweaver. <laughs> okay. Which is another horror song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That'd be amazing <laughs> if we covered just the Hall and Oates song Man Eater as an episode. That's our April Fool's. 2019 joke oh my gosh that one uh butted up with a uh, one-eyed one-horned flying purple people eater yeah sure and just, and just have like an eating series you know maybe for thanksgiving i don't know we'll see so <laughs> nonetheless <laughs> nonetheless we are back uh, in the 80s that uh decade of members only jackets and 
NES releases. Yeah, Trapper Keepers. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, so, listeners, yeah, what we wanted to do is, uh, we well, I really have been wanting to talk about this film, and we hadn't originally planned to do a coda to I Love the 80s, but this is a good opportunity. We feel like, you know, there was, there was probably more to say about the Nightmare franchise. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. We enjoyed that episode, but um, we wanted to say also use this as an opportunity to talk about sort of franchises in general. Because the uh, 80s were flooded with franchises. Now, we're going to focus on just sort of the potential of horror sequels through the lens of Dream Warriors. We're not going to be diving into a whole bunch of other horror franchises from the 80s. But we wanted to talk a little bit about this film and how it sort of reflects on what franchises can do and can become and how they can progress ideas from the original. So uh, so that's why we kind of wanted to dive back in to the nightmare dreamscape of uh, Freddy Krueger's world and uh, and just and talk about Dream Warriors. So Nathan, so so right up top, I hyped this film quite a bit for you, and I want to just know your your general thoughts on on Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors. Like just just hit me, hit me. What do you what do you think? Well, I thought you had just said the Warriors. So after I watched that and realized that, which was also an eighties movie, I think come out to play. <laughs> yes, exactly. What's what really funny about that joke is that I haven't actually seen the Warriors, so you're referencing it right <laughs> so then. I'm like, no oh, well, I guess that's a line from the movie. Thank you, Reed, for backing me up on that joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate it. So um, if you listened to our Nightmare 1 episode from three weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, two weeks ago, you'll know I'm a little tepid on Mr. Kruger's first entry into the world that said i really dug this movie oh that psychs me to hear i had i had never seen it um you had hyped it a decent amount in such a way that i was slightly worried but and in fact the note i wrote is that i know kind of intellectually that you kind of have to establish the the bad guy you know like i i, I understand why the first nightmare film has to exist. Yeah. But I sure. think dream warriors does so much better with that character and, or with that concept, I'm going to, I'm, I'm even, I'm even going to separate it a little bit from the Freddie character does so much better a job at the, um, just the pure inventiveness and the creative, the creative exercise of the core concept in such a way that it even makes the first film even paler to me in the in kind of the rear view. I, I really, really liked and and I'll I'll establish this real directly here while we're kind of jumping bebopping all over the place. Um because it's the eighties and we bebop. Um <laughs> and, and we rock steady. Um is wow. I think the strength of this film is Freddie as metaphor. You know what I mean? Mm, like, yeah, yeah. Like Freddie as literal antagonist who the movie's trying to establish sort of, uh, you know, the, the way he's presented in the first film is really kind of in a word lame to me. And yet in the third film, when he's used as metaphor, and by that, I mean these teenagers and their issues manifest in the form of freddy and trying to overcome those issues it becomes a much more interesting story because it's about them right it's right. about their 
strength or weakness in the face of their own issues if that makes sense. yeah oh oh no and i totally agree i feel like dream warriors is really where the freddy concept comes to full fruition uh which is fascinating because the like a little bit of history on the franchise craven never intended for the story a nightmare on elm street to proceed past the original film that was never his that was never his intention and even still now something that i found out that i did not mention on the episode uh but uh, had it confirmed actually in researching dream warriors was that he also i remember we talked about how uh, the ending seemed a bit confused because yeah. you know, her her work about like, oh, I take back all your power and then it doesn't really work. That was not Craven's ending. Craven's ending was it worked. They're good. Happy ending. Like all's Interesting. well. Yeah. But the producers wanted a possibility for a sequel. And so, you know, tacked on against Craven's wishes, this, you know, sort of ending that opens it back up to, oh, nope, he's back in power. There's more to him, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so then I uh, found it all the more interesting that now when and initially he didn't want anything else to do with anything else. So then. They make part two because part one was so successful. And part two, if listeners have never seen it, there's not much worth going into right now. It does. It acts as a kind of alternate original. Like it is so disconnected from the rest of the franchise that doesn't it doesn't go back deeply into um, Freddy's original origin story again. But it is so compartmentalized that it could almost be seen as like, like I said, an alternate original. And then with part three, it picks up the story basically with at least one character that we're all very familiar with. And that's Nancy. Uh, Nancy comes back in to the story from here. Thanks to, thanks to Craven. So then what, uh, what he intended yet again was part two was not terribly successful financially. It certainly wasn't as successful as the first one. And so Craven saw part three as another opportunity to like, final end the franchise <laughs> to like completely close it down and then part three was this huge runaway success and so then it spawned like four more sequels on top of that but getting back to what you had said about like you know freddie as metaphor i feel like this is the installment where he really sort of comes into his own as a character where his intentions of sort of like sadistically playing on the fears and the weaknesses of his of his victims uh really comes to full fruition his sadistic inventiveness as a tormentor in the nightmare realm uh is is much more creative and I think in some ways, if I can use this word fun. So, so yeah, there's, there's just a lot about this sequel, I think. And this is maybe a hot take for some people, but I think uh, that this film is not only a film that I enjoy more than the original, but I think there's a case to be made that it is objectively a better film than the original. Um, well, one, so that's my can, can a thing be a hot take 30 years after the fact? I, I don't know. Oh, that's a good I point. mean, you know, I guess. <laughs> I guess the the kids today need to define hot take for me, but um, <laughs> it's a lukewarm take by this point. It's a cold take. Um, it's a room temperature. Take. It's an on ice take. Um, but I I don't think again I, I'm who am I really? But I'm just a guy, you know, <laughs> standing in front of another guy saying, "What can I be on your podcast?" Oh my god. <laughs> 
this needs to stop. Oh my god. Um, but I would totally agree with your lukewarm take um, that it's it's a more interesting movie. Um, yeah. The yeah. the original has a couple of scares that might be tied for this film's scare sure. aspect, but sure. in terms of just pure like interesting story, this one is far superior to the original yeah to me well let's um before we get before we trudge right through likes dislikes and scares and stuff i have a couple of uh fun trivial bits i don't know if you have any but um uh one bit of casting news that i just thought was interesting is why nona Ryder auditioned for the role of Kristen that eventually went to patricia arquette um but at the time she was deemed by the you know creatives that be uh to be too young for the role but I thought that was re- I thought that was really interesting, especially given you know some of the some of the other things that she would go on to do in the specifically in the horror genre, as it were. Another one is just that the original script by Craven was much more graphic and much darker in general. It was originally wow. going to focus, yeah, originally going to focus much more heavily on the specific theme of suicide, but at the time. Uh, that was a very taboo topic. Teen suicide was was a kind of a hot button issue uh, in the mid to late 80s. And so they wanted to back away from that. It is still present in the final finished version that, of what we have, but much more rooted in like Freddie is manipulating them to do this uh, rather than sure. uh, what it was before, which is that they would all be driven by him to actively take their own life, which I just find a- an interesting note. Robert England really comes to his own as a character actor in this because uh, so much of the Freddy persona he he sort of brought to this, including a lot of ad libs, arguably the most famous ad lib or the most famous line that Freddy has is his line when he is killing Jennifer. And uh, he says, you know, this is your big break. And he says uh, he says the famous welcome to prime time. That was actually an ad lib the line this is your big break this is what you've always wanted was in the script but he ad libbed that other line and it was said with so much energy and enthusiasm that they were like i think we got to leave this in i think we got to leave this take in and so uh so yeah so then then it became one of you know kruger's most iconic lines in any of the films one more thing that I just wanted to mention that I thought was a pretty funny story. Uh, there was a week there where Robert England was working for literal 24 hours a day because he was filming a television show during the daytime, something called Downtown, which I don't think was terribly successful. But he was filming that show in the daytime, and then he would show up in the evenings to do Dream Warriors. And so he was literally working for 24 hours a day and catching naps when he could. Well, he fell asleep in the makeup chair in between some sets and so he fell asleep in full freddy makeup and then when he woke up legit freaked himself out (laughs) because he was like he's looking into a mirror and like forgot his you know he forgot his time and place for a minute and really got like genuinely terrified and had to be calmed down for a moment i (laughs) I love i love about that story that you're like hey crazy bit here uh, uh, Robert England was up for 24 hours because he was filming Dream Warriors and because he was filming this show that nobody remembers or cares about. <laughs> but that's why he was up. For 20. It's like, hey, exactly. look at look at all the work this guy put in. Uh, it, it, you know, have you heard of Downtown? Really you know, <laughs> I hadn't until this trivial bit. Prequel to the Abbey. Um. <laughs> Downtown Abbey. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that's where oh Freddie Freddie you know torments a bunch of. British 
period people. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you this is not the least amusing. <laughs> yes! Yes! It all oh comes around. That is so funny. Oh, that's so funny. Um, so, yeah, that's a, I mean, that kind of closes the loop on some trivial bits I found interesting. But uh, I do think there's a lot to like about this film. I'll lead with one and then I'll bounce to you to, to share a few. Uh, one thing that I just love about this movie is the general concept of a group of teenagers banding. I mean, in all of the slasher films, teenagers are the prey, they're the victims, but it is rare. It is very rare to get what we get in this film, which is they know they're being hunted. They know they are victims, but they actively choose to like band together and they are going to uh, go to rescue one of their own, but also to take down this threat. And there's something very invigorating about that premise, not just, hey, we're all being hunted. We got to find a way to escape, but they're actively going to take the fight back to him in the dream world. And I find that uh, really compelling, really interesting. And so I just love the general conceit of this film, which from my recollection is pretty unique, not only to this franchise, but to slasher films in general. It's rare to see a slasher film where the teen victims collectively just really band together to try to take an active fight to their threat. And, uh, and I really like that. It's very exciting. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I think that that's, I remember the sequence. Who is the, um, yeah, the mute kid. Do you remember his name? That's Joey. Yeah, that's Joey. I think I texted you around this part part, because I don't see him in my notes. I remember writing it down, so I may have just said it to you. This would be on my scares list, but Philip's puppet dream is just nightmarish. But Oh, my gosh, uh, yes. Kind of intercut into that is Joey running down the halls with the food tray, slamming the tray against the doors. Oh, it's so great. That That's moment so great. had such an innervating quality about it. It was like you you kind of start to kind of rise to the occasion as the viewer with these characters. You know, you feel that sort of connective aspect of what they're about to journey into together on. I don't know. I really loved that moment. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Um, I don't know. For some reason, I got real disheartened at Freddie attacking Zsa Zsa Gabor. Just felt like that was kind of that was kind of a, <laughs> so can, that was kind of unnecessary. <laughs> can I tell you a little story about that? It's kind of please, funny. So, so please. in the script, Dick Cavett was written in, but his guest was not. Uh-huh. And so, when he agreed to do the film, they said, "Who do you want your guest? Like, who do you want your guest to be? Who do you want Freddie to kill?" And here was what he said. Like, this is on record. Here was what he said. He was like, "You know what?" Jaja Gabor has got to be one of the stupidest people I have ever met. I would never have her on my show, so let's kill her. Wow. And and that is why now I don't know what they pitched to her to get her to be on it, but that is why she's there yeah. because they approached Dick Cavett and asked him who he wanted and he <laughs> picked Jaja Gabor. Wow. That is yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that's, it's absolutely crazy. That's a shame. Um <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, the opening sequence is really strong. The nightmare sequence of the little girl, the mud in the hall, um, the teens kind of hanging in that, you know, kind of culminating in um, Kristen's suicide attempt. That's just a really strong yeah, sequence. Right. Uh, I'd said several of these about the metaphor and stuff. This is a really random incidental little Nathanism. But I wrote down, what is the point of locks in movies? The, doc- <laughs> the doctor used like what is effectively a little, little, little pebble. <laughs> break, to break to break the log it's like okay yeah, yeah. What, whatever they're, they're not even <laughs> locks and movies aren't even obstacles they're just like ah, 
it's an inconvenience. <laughs> like, oh, my shoes un my shoes untied. Oh well, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's crazy. Just, just, just little, little funny, little funny bits. Uh, generally, I think the effects in this are really competent, uh, really effective. Oh yes, that's and my I very next list, is, or that's my very next item. Uh, item on my likes dislikes is I think the effects are a huge step up, with the possible exception of admitted datedness on the stop motion stuff with the Freddy puppet and with the skeleton at the end. All the rest of it looks fantastic. Looks really, really great. Well, but there's I, I'm yes I I agree, but at the same time, kind of like American Werewolf in London, which are, has already gotten a shout out this episode. <laughs> At the end of American Werewolf, when Jack or David, whoever is the dead one, appears in the movie theater and he's just the kind of corpsey version, uh -huh. you just you kind of go with it because you know it's the eighties and we're in two thousand eighteen now. But it, it is pretty effective visually. Um, similarly, yeah. similarly here, you know, could I tell that the skeleton at the end is not really there? Sure. Was it still right, kind of right. was it still kind of effective? Yeah, it kind of was. Um, sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean. I think the effects are most exemplified, and this would be on a scares list too, by the Freddy head kind of in the first third or so of the film. Yeah. Oh, um, my gosh. That's, the big snake thing yeah. that you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, my good Lord. That's disgusting, so, but it's great too. Well, another, another interesting thing about that. Well, uh, uh, probably interesting. Uh, as you can remember, his character most of the time has a kind of a burnt pinkish pale sort of tone to his skin right well originally when they made that big contraption uh without getting too graphic on what is ostensibly a kind of a family-oriented uh show is it that? uh, uh I, mean, I don't know well <laughs> it was it was basically they, they all looked at it and agreed like this looks way too phallic like this, like there's not like there's no way we would get away with having this be the way it is. So their solution, rather than having to redesign the entire contraption and redo the entire moment, was instead just to saturate it in green goop. And uh, so really, they you know, they did everything as they had already created it. But instead of giving him his usual fleshy reddish tone, they instead made him this greenish globish kind of thing and uh and yeah it's terribly terribly effective um yeah I, I i really could have i really could have gone the rest of my life without phallic and greenish goop and kind of the same sequence of sentences <laughs> um much less with freddie associated with it um i think something i really liked about this movie that at least for me the first one and again i've not seen anything but the first one in this one but the first one maybe you, you could make a case you read might make a case to me and I might buy it that maybe the first one does this a little bit, but I think the third one really dives hard into this in a way that uh, I found interesting. There's something, and this is appropriate for the series we're in. Um, there's something very eighties about this. This felt like the, the dream world sequences felt like this really, exemplary 80s fantasy kind of visualization um there were notes of like is it lady hawk is that the movie i'm thinking of there's that uh, there maybe. was like uh never ending story these kind of like oh yeah it just yeah. looked like a fantasy story out of the 80s as opposed to a strictly kind of horror tale if that makes sense at all you know you've got oh yeah the um the nerd kid in the wheelchair who becomes the magician um you've got terrans 
sort of this whole persona that she becomes in the dream world. I don't know. I just really loved that whole component of it. It felt like even though Freddie was kind of Lord of that realm, they were very much had some agency in there as well. And, and were kind of fighters, if you will, it was, it was a pretty cool general aesthetic. Yeah. And it's really, it, it makes you care. Well, it makes me, care pretty significantly about the characters care a lot more than I did even in the first one because to be honest I don't I don't care that much no. about the characters in the first one but this one uh, I mean like you mentioned Taryn when Taryn goes down like I'm really genuinely sad by that I'm genuinely sort of heartbroken and then uh, when uh, when will uh, the one uh, who's confined to a wheelchair you know when when he gets taken out you really feel the weight of their absence more in this one than I feel like the first one substantiated for them and then culminating and we're you know we're spoiling everything without warnings but that it's kind of what we do culminating in uh, you know, ultimately the death of Nancy, the final, the final sort of stand of Nancy against, uh, of Nancy against Kruger. And, uh, and yeah, you just, you just care a lot more about them. Uh, this idea, which may show up in theme again for me, I don't know, we'll see, but, um, this idea of like dream power and in their dreams, they can be this, you know, this best self. It's a kind of a cheesy line, but I actually really like Taryn's line where she says, in my dreams, I'm beautiful and bad. Like it's it's a little bit of a cheesy line, but I, I just really like it. It's it's it endears her to me. Well, it it is a cheesy line, but a cheesy line in or, or or out of a character who fully believes it kind of works. You know what I mean? Like yeah, oh yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's what you're sensing there, and at least what you're conveying is she. There, there's some there's some truth in that line to that character, even though it's kind of cheesy. Um, yeah. Can I say one more thing about Karen? It's just a, a, a interesting to me um, that despite her character's ultimate fate, um, the actress Jennifer Rubin has stated that because she hasn't had a, a tremendously illustrious career following this film. This film is mostly what she's known for. But um, following this film, she said that a lot of people approach her and tell her that the character of Taryn uh, actually provided some degree of inspiration for them to to kick drugs. Wow, get and That's get cool. off drugs and 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 it, that's a it's a it's a kind of an unexpected but really compelling and somewhat touching legacy behind that character and and what you were talking about about Freddie as metaphor and about the ultimate sort of uh, you know him forcing her to succumb to all of that. I think that wor- that all works together very well as a as a very cohesive piece. Agreed. That's a really cool story. And and again, I think I think that's why this film works so well is it's not just Freddy stalking these kids, which is what effectively the first one is. Um, yeah, you know, that's right, right. that that gets tired quick. You know, they've just become disposable sort of, you know, just disposable elements thrown at the character of Freddy from a screenwriting perspective that really have no. Right no depth to them. And so this movie really does a great job of establishing these characters as having intentions and, and motives and, and a rich sort of inner life. And that's a really cool thing. And are you okay to pivot to scares? Yeah, let's do it. I referenced this a minute ago, but even though I would rank the, uh, green gooped phallic Freddie on my scares list, um, (laughs) which I mean, (laughs) 
Who knew in a lifetime one would say what that phrase? Statement. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I didn't. Um, but the eighties were a crazy time. Am I right? Um, I do. <laughs> I I do think the first real and incredibly effective horrific moment of this film is the puppet dream of philip the marionette oh, it's it's awful it's it, if if you're not going to watch this movie one it uh, hear hear this as from me like it's got an element of fun to it it's dated in the sense that it's made in the 80s and the effects associated therein but it's it's a pretty compelling movie however if you're not going to watch it you know in this mental hospital where all these teenagers are 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 plagued by their own sort of demons separate from Freddy one in particular. Oh my God. In his, in his sort of nightmare sequence, his veins tear from his limbs and become this Mary marionette uh, aspect. And he's in the real, just kind of mummy walking through the halls of this hospital. And then it'll cut to the, in the dream and it's veined and all. Oh, it's, it's, horrific truly horrific well and what heightens the what heightens the emotion on that that's the scene that you referenced earlier with joey going and slamming yeah, he's, he's yeah. unable to speak and so he's trying to wake everybody up to this by slamming the tray against the walls but then not only do you have what you see philip going through but all of them are at the window screaming for him to wake up which is not something you get from many of the other dreams most of the dreams are solitary the deaths are solitary um so the, so it's it's heightened by the fact that they're witnessing this happening yes. to him helpless to stop it and that's a very uh in terms of raising the stakes establishing the threat it's it's wonderfully effective it in total it works really well together of establishing what these characters are up against it's kind of heartbreaking for that character and uh yes it's yeah it's great so reed i'm gonna throw a a question at you okay so this is still unmitigated in the scares list un un it needs no qualification but it this is still in the scares conversation i'm gonna throw a question at you so okay you were this isn't the question this is the preface to the question this is just how i work okay um uh you you were in the 90s at least uh um, a a teenage male christian right like that's (laughs) That would be the column yes. that you occupied on the when you're just checking the demographic, right? True, true. Correct me if I'm wrong, Reed, but I don't think I am. I mean, <laughs> flashback to 1996. You know, you're you're, right. you're 15, right. you're 16, you're 17, somewhere in there. Is there a worst nightmare to your deepest imaginings? And you're an imaginative fellow. Um, but in the deepest recesses in the subconscious nooks and crannies of the teen male Christian mind, is there a worse nightmare than a sexy naked woman eating your tongue and turning into Freddy Krueger? Does there exist (laughs) under the sun a more, more just exemplary version of male teen purity culture in a nutshell is that a sexy woman who is ostensibly attracted to you comes on to you and she's naked and she starts eating your tongue in terms of Freddy Krueger. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. I'm answering my own question, but I'm asking you, (laughs) 
is there because because i'm so like on board with my question i'm like no it does not exist that, that there's any version of teenage me that isn't utterly absolutely terrified and horrified of the pit of hell and is like i will not think about or kiss a girl ever because she's going to turn into freddy and kill me yes yes ex- <laughs> exactly exactly um because yes and that is not only a uh, christian male purity culture uh that is like the the biggest sort of metaphor for abstinence everybody uh you know like i i could see i, I mean i could imagine if uh youth camps had been on board with uh, yeah the horror genre yeah that they would have shown a scene like that and been like so that's why you can't Right. Involved in right. this kind of stuff. Hey, right. Yeah. And they pitch it. It's like you're at the camp and the girls go off to their sort of purity talk and the guys go off to theirs and the, the youth leaders like, all right, everybody. So, hey, who here likes horror movies? I, I don't know. <laughs> I do. Reads in the corner like me, me. Like, okay, you, <laughs> you little guy over there. <laughs> they're like, oh you know, gosh. do you like girls? Like, yeah. You know, most of the room is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then it's like, okay. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> and then like, all right, I want to show you a video about what God will do to you for liking girls. And then he shows that scene. Like I can, oh I can gosh. really, I can envision that. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like a distant thunder and dream warriors. Right. You know, so that's what, that's the movies they show at youth. What's even worse about that, outside of the purity culture conversation, what's even worse about that is that like most males of that time period, I'm, I'm certain, uh, Joey does not learn the lesson. Because I know you have not seen this film, and I'm about to spoil something about uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, um, but... Uh, when it, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 opens with the survivors of Dream Warriors oh, sort of being all right. accosted again. Um, and what's Joey the, ne- what's the subtitle of that movie? Dream Master. The Dream Master. Mm, um, yeah. And I'm going uh, to ignore the easy jokes there about <laughs> purity culture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Oh, but Joey does not learn his lesson because when, when, uh, when, when Kruger ultimately gets him, uh, yeah, it's, it is almost in identically the same way. Oh, wow. Jeez, Joey. So yeah. Yeah. Jeez, buddy. He needs, he needs an accountability friend. He needs an accountability group. So, well, it's because he's laying on a waterbed and then all of a sudden he pulls the sheets back and there's, there's a woman like under the, (laughs) the bed. Poor Joey. This is, he's he's like, he really is like a metaphor for the beset teen Christian male of the nineties. You know, it's true. It's true. And it's funny because like, he just does not imagine for a moment, huh? Maybe (laughs) this is a bad idea. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't proceed with this. Yeah. uh, Poor guy. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh my gosh. Um, so many, uh, many, a, many a young men were lost in just such a fashion. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> they all come tumbling down. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. What other, what other scares you got? What other scares you got? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, that, that, I, uh, that one's a pretty summary one, but what others are a there? Pretty big one. Yeah. Um, honestly, no, I think, uh, I think that's, I think that does it. I do find the, this is not quite a scare. This is a scare slash dislike. 
Um, I still find I roll with it, but it's probably my major ding on this film because it is so just sort of uh, grotesque and and a bit, I think, too far, mm, a bit too much. I know where you're going. Um, is, yeah, is his ultimate origin story. The Kruger character, his ultimate origin story, uh, which I'm I'm only going to vaguely hint at. I'm not even going to like fully repeat it, but just basically it involved uh, this poor nun who was assaulted by like, you know, a uh. number of maniacs. And it's just and so so that is a that is an element to the film. Now, one thing that I do kind of like is I do like the reveal near the end of the film where you find out that the woman who you've perceived right. to just be like a nun who has sort of told them how to ultimately defeat him which by the way side note th- some of the elm street films are dubbed like with a nickname as it were uh for reasons that are, <laughs> i'm not going to go into right now uh part two uh because of some intentional subtext by the screenwriter and you know by some ultimate effects in the finished film uh, is dubbed the gay one um, and that that's not in a, a sort of a slur way but uh, but actually like has some of those themes and then this one is dubbed the Christian one primarily because the way he is ultimately defeated in this film is by being buried on you know hollowed ground doused in you know holy water and put this cross over top of him and so all of those elements, uh, we already talked last episode that we talked about Nightmare on the Street about Craven's sort of, uh, you know, religious upbringing and how it kind of informs and saturates a lot of his a lot of his material. But getting back to that nun is you discover at the end of the film that the nun who ultimately was responsible for telling them how to defeat him, you find out that was the ghost of his mother, as it were. And I did like that reveal. I did sure. genuinely like that reveal. But the origin story otherwise, it's very like just kind of slimy makes me nauseous i'm just like oh no uh i'm gonna make a a zach snyder import here so i'm with you the amanda krueger the freddie backstory feels a little bit like what the writer's room might have felt like when zach snyder proposed superman murders odd where they're like are you oh my gosh are you sure like (laughs) like (laughs) i mean it's an idea like we we come up with a lot of ideas in the writers' room. That's what it's for, and the, and they're just like, nah, man, nah, it's good. Let's do that. That's that is how the Freddy Krueger origin story feels. It's like like someone didn't pump the brakes on the. What's really worrisome is what the worst version was, right? You know, it's like oh, oh I know. If oh, that's know. the yeah, you know kind of like streamlined sanding down the edges version, what was the like? <laughs> what was the really bad version of the origin? Anyway. No kidding. No, no joke. No joke. Never let um, it be said. I let a conversation go without a sex Snyder reference. <laughs> that's probably true. That's probably true. Um, it's been a little well, It's um, been a little while. Did you? Uh, yeah, maybe two episodes. And so, like... Um, <laughs> So I don't know. I don't have that's that concludes the end of my scares list. Did you have any any more specifics to, um, before we dive? I mean, all I, all I wrote was babyface tummy, Freddy. You know. Oh my gosh! Yes, baby that face is tummy. That was rough. That is really really disturbing, just as a concept and as a visual. That is a really upsetting sort of scene. It is. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. I, I I should have added that to my list because that definitely qualifies. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have anything sort of substantive for 
thematic conversation that you wanted to dive into? Read. I always have something substantive thematically. Uh, no. I know. Just, just, that's just who I am. I uh, know. So, yeah. I mean, so, um, I was really struck. And someone might be like, Nathan, your head's in the political cloud too much. Maybe. But I was really struck by the scene at the hospital when the kids start to comprehend their connection to each other. And Mm, mm -hmm. the adults or the professionals or the powers that be, if you will, um, rationalize their legitimate connection and concern away. Yeah. And I wrote down when clear systemic problems pervade a people group and the powers that be rationalize it away as just another thing. Um, Mm. And most explicitly, I wrote certainty versus imagination. And Mm. I know that may seem really odd, but I think there's this really, do you know the scene I'm talking about? Does that ring a bell? When? Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I was just so struck Reed because there've been a couple I should not have, but I've indulged. I've, there've been a couple of social media interactions lately that I knew were not, I let the guardrails up a little bit and I shouldn't have, um, and engaged in conversations that I shouldn't because social media conversations with people who are on opposite sides of you tend to go nowhere because there's no actual relational dynamic to social media. I'm preaching to myself as much as to any choir here, but I let (laughs) myself get sucked in. And it's funny because that happened right before watching this movie and my experience of that social media interaction felt a lot like watching these kids get shut down by these adults where it was like, no, there is a reality of a thing happening and someone else saying, no, 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 bro. Here's how, here's how to rationalize all that away. And you're like, ah, no, no, no. But really there are systemic problems that are kind of evident if you're like wanting to see them. And so I'm going to step away from the political notion and, and drill down a little bit more in that certainty versus imagination. It may seem an odd thing to state, but I just think there is, is dearth dearth is an absence, right? Or, or a diminished volume of a thing, a dearth. Uh, Yeah. I think that's the proper use of the word on a thing. Um, Thank you. I appreciate you backing me up there. Um, I think there is a dearth of imagination in our culture and it is going to kill us. Mm. Um, I think that, and maybe I'm being more pithy with this moment than it deserves or with this idea than it deserves. I thought about this a couple of years ago and it's coming to me now. This language is coming to me now. I remember thinking as Christians, as Americans, we are so concerned with truth that we ignore, we resist beautiful and good, like Hmm. certainty versus imagination. We are, we, we want to be certain. We want you to have your ID. That's the right ID to be certain that you are this thing or this person or this right type of believer. 
ignoring all the nuanced ways that humans actually exist in the world. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that's a really random sort of rabbit trail to follow, but that scene really spoke to me because this whole movie is about the open heartedness, the open mindedness, the imaginations of these afflicted teenagers, these traumatized teenagers utilizing their imagination to become that best self in order to overcome the demons that plague them. And it is those who preach and enforce and diagnose certainty that absolutely miss the point and absolutely doom those in their care. I don't know. It was a really interesting sort of conversation that the movie was trying to have there. Yeah. And I, I, I see what you mean. I think that what keeps coming to mind as I'm listening to you talk about this is sort of the plague of normalcy. What I'm scratching at is something that you could call normalcy. You could call conformity a status quo, if you will. But this idea of we're not going to like, we're going to erase and, sand down all of the specific rough edges that you to your personhood have and and make you into this you know this one thing you talk about this dearth of imagination you know it's like this is this is what you have to be this is the box you have to fit in this is the path you have to take this is the the line you have to tow all of those different elements that i think certainly a bounty of religious thought is guilty of fencing in its its inhabitants with Uh, but i think politics does it i think social norms do it and i find something really compelling i don't know if this is a, a strong diversion from your theme or not but i find something really compelling about their their differing selves in the dream world their better best selves in the dream world like you were trying to kind of talking about in their in their imaginations there is something where they have power and they have agency and they have strength and they keep getting, you know, sort of hampered by, you know, uh, the people in their quote unquote normal lives, people in their, their real world lives, constantly drawing them, you know, away from that and trying to tell them, well, this thing is really this, you know, this is really like uh, thinking about unpacking Philip's death scene specifically. And how much they were drilling, even even uh, their primary doctor, who eventually comes on board to the fight and helps them, you know, by ultimately sort of burying uh, Freddy. But the fact that he's even like, no, Philip made a choice and, you know, he was weak and, and did all of that stuff. And just ultimately denying the reality that they, that collective group, including Nancy, know to be what's really going on. And so to me, it speaks you know, kind of piggybacking on what you were saying, it speaks to me of a this sort of way we want to stamp down and squash and destroy the vibrant, imaginative, true self in so many individuals and uh, and want them to conform to what we consider to be normalcy. And here's what's fascinating to me is that each subculture can develop its own normalcy, that what can begin as sort of countercultural and unique then can establish its own set of rules and regulations 
Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Sure. That it's like what's what starts as like nerd subculture. Well, now there's you know debates about what are you really a nerd or are you this or are you that. Like, <laughs> rules develop and, and you it's ain't like a nerd. you know <laughs> you know and it's like and then you know you get like geek culture and then you get like punk culture and you get Christian culture and you get uh, you know all of these different subcultures that rise up that once you that that maybe initially. They are a push towards individuality and imagination, but then the moment a lot of other people get involved and it becomes kind of shifts towards a movement, then it takes on this new transitional state where it's not so it's not so unique anymore and it's not so individualistic anymore. Uh, we talked way back in our green room conversation about like you know how punk is about just sort of refusal to. Uh, just abide by the conformed norms, you know, and uh, and that sometimes you you have to get a little punk, you know. And in that film, they were going up against Nazis. In this one, uh, you know, they're going up against their worst sort of nightmares. But I just find it really compelling this whole their their best self abiding in their imagination. And we talked in the original conversation about the original installment about, and we just sort of brushed up against it and then brushed past it about, you know, our dreams manifesting themselves into reality. And I think there's something to be said here about um, maybe this is a bumper sticker. I'm not quite sure. I do have a scripture to, to maybe coincide with this, but I'm thinking of if you are in your imagination, your best self, and you want to bring that forth, you want to usher it forth in the metaphor of this film, working with the language of this film in your dreams, you're be- you're beautiful and bad, <laughs> you know, like in, you know, you are your best version of yourself, so to speak. And what is standing in between you and fulfilling that in the reality is this malicious predatory sort of representation metaphorical representation of all of your worst weaknesses your worst fears uh your flaws as an individual you know it's like what's standing for the Karen character in between you know freedom from addiction and her sort of best realization of who she is 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 him in that moment he's that's how he sort of kills her is by taking on the physical representation of those things and, uh, you know, and destroying her that way. And so I just find it very compelling, this idea that we have within us the seeds to be who we desire and dream to be. And then also there is this this sort of monstrous, nightmarish assault saying, you know, well, your your weaknesses or your flaws or, uh, you know, in the real world, the demands of conforming and and subverting imagination are holding you back and keeping you captive, as it were. And, and yeah, I, I think I think it's an interesting thing for the film to uh, to explore. Do you have any thoughts on that before I bring in the in the scripture? No, I think you actually did a, a pretty good job of that. Thank you. Um well, okay, so the scripture that I had in mind, it might be a bit uh, sort of cautionary, as it were, but it was a passage from the book of Job that stood out to me, and uh, I'll bring this up, and then I'll kind of maybe wrap a bow on what we're talking about here. Job chapter 33, verse 14 through 18 says, For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it, in a dream 
in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Now, obviously, I was drawn to this passage of scripture because of its language around dreams, but, you know, this idea that maybe in our subconscious, maybe in our imaginative state, there can be beautiful, encouraging, and also terrifying and cautionary things. And I think the real struggle that we have, the real fight is if we have uh, a vision of ourselves that would be the, you know, sort of the best version of ourselves. I want to be the best father I can be. I want to be the best husband I can be, the best man I can be, the best worker I can be, all of these sort of best visions of ourselves. Um, And I think we should pay attention to what's going on. excuse me, in the richness of our imagination, uh, because sometimes it's not only our subconscious playing around with that, but if the passage from Joe is to be accepted and believed that occasionally even the Lord will deal in dreams uh, to push us in one direction or another to turn us from what would be destructive in our life, to preserve us from the pit and to keep us from falling prey to those things and to push us into uh, something greater and something better. And, And this is really all just about utilizing your imagination as uh, I think I've said before on another episode, I'll say it here as kind of a a, a button, uh, maybe with the intention of winding us down, that uh, your imagination is sacred space. It's it's holy ground. And uh, we should be attentive to what we allow to linger there, what we allow to hold power there and and how we will talk to ourselves out of what we imagine and uh, and not to necessarily be too swayed or allow the seeds that toxic relationships or negative influences or people who would stifle who we really know ourselves to be. Uh, I, I think um, we can talk ourselves out of that if we are willing to see our imaginations as sacred space and as the scriptures declare elsewhere to, you know, to think on whatsoever is good and pure and right uh, and lovely. And I think those are the things that we should allow to uh, to sort of fertilize the soil of our imagination, as it were. Does that all make sense? My, my random thoughts there. It does. It does. You're, it's, it is random but coherent, and I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. Well, if you want to, uh, we can we can leave it there for the moment and bring in our our good friend old uh, Freddie S. Pumpkins, Whoa. if you want to call him that. <laughs> um, so uh, we, you know, uh, we're we're looking to see about you know how we can sort of uh, transform or, or you know bring David S. Pumpkins into his next stage of evolution. But what we do is we measure every film on the metric of style, scares, and substance. Um, so Nathan, I'm going to pivot to you first what would you give uh nightmare on elm street three dream warriors in the realm of style well knowing my uh feelings on the first film and knowing i didn't know what to expect of this one i am gonna give it a three and a half ah all right i'm gonna give it a four i liked it i liked it a lot um i I don't know that it's i don't know that it's one i'll like watch a ton but for pure like unexpected pleasure it was it definitely met check the box so i'm gonna give it a four awesome awesome i am gonna see your four and raise you just a touch and raise it a four and a half well hey there you go 
If I was going based on my pure enjoyment of the film, which is what informed the rating, it might even be a five, but I recognize it's not a perfect film. There's still a couple of things that uh, ding, and it's very of the 80s uh, still, but but I feel very confident in a four and a half. Um, now, for scares, for me, um, I think there's some really effective stuff in this. I think it's it's possible that you could really get freaked out by a couple of things, but it's also got a dated quality to it. So I'm going to land at a four for scares. I think a, I think four feels right for me. Um, I think there's a strong gross factor to it. And well, you know what? I was about to hedge a little bit, but I'm going to join you on a four Phillips death sequence alone merits probably three whole points on its own. Um, sure. It's a pretty sure. terrifying sequence there. So I, I'm, I'm going to go with a four. Awesome. Awesome. And what would you uh, rate this on substance? Um, I think it gives a little more lip service than true substance to that notion, but um, I think I'll, I'll I'll land at a three on substance. I think there's some stuff there that is actually real and tangible, um, but it doesn't kind of commit to being real high-minded, though. Sure, sure. I think based on uh, some of what you could glean easily just from the from the premise and from some of the uh, you know specifically individual beats the character beats uh, i'm gonna land at a four for substance uh um, that's maybe a little i uh, know that's maybe a little higher than uh than maybe i should warrant it but uh but it but it kind of again it kind of feels right and so that means uh to perhaps some surprise that we give nightmare on elm street three dream warriors Eight out of ten, not wow. seven out of ten. No, but eight out of no. ten. We liked David it. S. Pumpkins. We did. We Reed, did. We really you know what else it. we liked? Yeah. We liked what? the eighties. That was a good decade. <laughs> and and in it's some true. ways, so I'm true. sad to see this series come to an end. In other ways, it's been a heck of a ride, buddy. You know, we had our our Hot Wheels and our our He Man <laughs> and you know our Care Bears. You know. Um, sure, you sure. Know, our Teddy, our Teddy Ruxpin. Let's just go down the list here. You know, just, just, just we can just name them all. All from the eighties. All from the eighties. Well, this has been fun, and I definitely have a feeling that we have not, uh, uh, you know, left the left behind the eighties for good. I'm sure we will return to it probably uh, sometime soon. Maybe not in a whole hog series again. But uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, if you're wanting to know the top fifty voted on horror films, uh, you can listen to the last the previous five episodes uh most recently poltergeist where we uh issued our top 10 um and then you can go to letterboxd if you have a letterboxd page uh it is a public uh list you can look at the top 100 voted on listener uh listener voted favorite horror films of the 1980s from hashtag i love the 80s. Reed, really fun time is, really great series yeah read is is next week the stand Next week. Wow. We've deferred it. We have, we have pushed it off. I'm very excited. Uh, next week is the epic, is the phenomenal, is the outstanding. Uh, please don't miss it. Uh, the crossover episodes, special guests, and all kinds of fun. We are covering Quarterly King 4, Stephen King's The Stand. So refresh yourself with that material, engage that material, and we will see you there next week. Nathan, thank Reed. you so much, as always, uh, for this conversation and for everything. Yes, my friend. You're welcome for everything. <laughs> All right, everybody. We will see you next week.
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com for show notes or to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.